A reading from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 20. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramoth. Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint to us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods, so they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to do his plowing and others to do his, in his harvest, other to gather in his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of all, he will take a tenth of your seed and your vendors and give it to his high officials and his servants. Then you will cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations. And our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. A reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses verse 13 through chapter 5 verse 1 but having the same spirit of faith according to uh, what is written I believed therefore I spoke 
we also believe. Therefore, we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise with Jesus, raise us with Jesus, and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. So that grace, having spread to more and more people, will cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary lie affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 25, 35. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that he could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard about this, they came out to take custody of him. For they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And so he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons and daughters of men. And whatever blasphemies they commit, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and while they were standing outside, sent word to him, calling for him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those 
who were sitting around him, he said, you are my mother's, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we, we glorify your name. We pray that um, you would receive our worship, that as we come to you to hear your word, it would uh, go deep into our hearts like a seed planted uh, that would bear much fruit. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us that we would be excited to worship, we'd be lively, and we'd give you, as the scriptures say, the, the praise uh, due to your name. Amen. So, what are these called? Parchments. Not parchments. Anybody? Pyramids. There we go. It's a new color. Yeah. What's that mean? It's a different season. It's a different season. What season is it? Ordinary. Ordinary time, or sometimes it's called the seasons after Pentecost. And so, this would be called the second Sunday, as in Lily's birthday, June 6th is the second Sunday after Pentecost, which is the first Sunday in uh, ordinary time. And it's the first of, anybody know how many? Twenty-five. There's 26 Sundays after Pentecost. 25 after Trinity Sunday. So, uh, our new year, this coming year, and Advent will begin on November 28th, the Sunday right after Thanksgiving. So, um, you guys can turn there if you want. We're going to start with Mark, then we'll go to Second Corinthians, and we'll just go up the outline. And so I just want to make a few observations about Mark and Second Corinthians, and then we're going to spend most of our time in First Samuel. Um, and so, I just want to point out, like, in how you're reading the story... Um, I like to read large sections at a time when I can and just try to like understand like if, uh, like try to understand the flow of the narrative and what's going on. And so they did a really good job in the scripture readings of pointing out um, uh, there's Jesus' family is looking for him. I put on the notes there, there's a sort of chiastic structure. Uh, I didn't go verse by verse, but kind of idea by idea. And so Jesus is in a crowd and his family is looking for him because they think he is out of his mind. And then it's like, boom, next sentence. And the Pharisees think he has a demon. And they also think he's pretty much crazy and casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so um, in some sense, Mark is relating that those two thoughts between the family of we think Jesus is crazy, we're trying to get him, he needs to come home, he's out here preaching that he's the Christ, wild guy, his family is looking for him, and the Pharisees saying he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so Jesus does a, a, a short teaching on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and then again, his family is looking for him. So that's right in between, like the, that's his, that story of, of Beelzebub, of of the Pharisees saying that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub is right between his family looking for him, right? And so just as Jesus is giving a teaching, because uh, it doesn't ever say his family found him or anything, <laughs> like they were looking for him, they're trying to get a hold of him uh, because they think he's crazy, think he's out of his mind. And so 
Uh, Nezer doesn't in the scriptures write in that sense as in the next sentence. It doesn't get uh, resolved. We don't know if they found him uh, till we get to uh, Jesus' then. So he's got a teaching on what the Pharisees are saying, right? And then there's a teaching on what his family is saying. Because again, the, he's in a crowd. Uh, they're looking for him. His family is looking for him again. And um, presumably, maybe this is the same instance, same day. And then he has another teaching on who are my mother and my brother and my sisters. And his teaching concludes with whoever does the will of God uh, is his brother, his sister, and his mother. So I just wanted to point that out, that sometimes it's healthy and it's good to read um, and just look for, like, what's the flow of the narrative and what is the author trying to bring out? Because uh, we usually, like, even we tend to read in paragraphs and those are uh, largely put in by the by the translators, and they're probably pretty good, but I don't know. I've never translated Greek text before. And so uh, we tend to think like, okay, end of a paragraph, and this is all like piecemeal and jumping. And sometimes it's good to just take a look and be like, okay, it just like cuts. It's like a cut scene, and then just goes to like something new. And so we start thinking new thoughts. And uh, like a good example of that, I think, is in Luke 16. Let me... uh, just double check. I think it's Luke 16. Yeah. So in Luke 16, uh, Jesus has a parable. Well, actually, all the way from um, chapter 14, there's a parable of the wedding feast. The talks about the cost of the discipleship, the parable of the lost sheep in 15, the lost coin, the prodigal son. Chapter 16, the dishonest manager talks about the law and the kingdom. And then in verse 18 in Luke 16, there's just a very moralistic teaching on divorce and remarriage. And then he goes back to another parable. Now, that doesn't really make sense. He doesn't really do that. In the midst of all these parables, uh, there's not like some moralistic teaching, uh, although there are morals involved. Um, that's It'd be very weird to go from like all these parables and all these teachings and then... Uh, here's a short teaching, and then here's more parables, right? It's a little out of place. And so the reader should think, oh, that's weird that that's, how are we reading this? Is it uh, making sense, right? And so I just wanted to point that out. Um, In Christ's teaching, Christ in this section does conclude the teaching on who is a true, um, who is truly the family of God. And those are who hear the words of God, but who and who do the will of God. And so, uh, let's just jump to Corinthians, Second Corinthians four. And really, the only observation I want to make: uh, we did go through this a little bit ago, and uh, we did go through Second Corinthians in the church calendar earlier this year. I can't remember exactly what when. But if you look at your notes, the only thing I noted was. Earthly things are transient. Spiritual things are eternal. Yay? Yay. Maybe. Um, Sort of. We tend to think of um, that like in maybe pietistic ways, but uh, something that would do us well is like Lily's catechism that we use through the same curriculum we use for the downstairs, and she does it in her uh, homeschooling. And we asked, there was a question that asked, like, how was Adam made? What was he made out of? He was made out of dirt. He was made out of the rib. 
from Adam and how was he made? He was made holy and happy. And was he was Adam and Eve were Adam and was Adam made just a physical being? No, Adam had a uh, a soul that will live forever. And then the next question is, uh, do you have a soul that will last forever? And the answer is, yes, I have a soul that will last forever. And so, um, although it says the unseen things are eternal, I kind of put in my own wording those spiritual things, because we tend to think our, uh, just our spirit and our soul, which is eternal, which is true, uh, is it, but we will also be raised with a physical body like Christ. And so what exactly does that mean? I don't know. But um, this is something we can uh, just ponder on this. I'm trying to just throw it out there. Um, And it's not anything we're ever going to comprehend, but it says that the afflictions uh, that we experience in this life are preparing us for a weight of eternal glory. And so um, the physical and the spiritual we say are inextricably intertwined. You can't have your spirit, uh, your spirit and your body are uh, two separate things, but they're so interconnected that something happens to you physically, something happens to you spiritually. Something happens to you spiritually, something happens to you physically. Um, and there's tons of like just real world examples that we can bring out that uh, are common to everybody. Like, um, like when I'm sick, uh, when my physical body is sick, I usually just feel like laying in bed all day and watching movies, and I'm not that diligent about anything except for complaining, whining, and being lazy. Um, but it's not like I'm physically incapable to get up sometimes and go to work or, uh, or something. But um, because I'm physically sick, uh, my spirit is unwilling to, to do things, right? We've all experienced that. When someone's happy... You know, I'd be like, oh, I'm so happy. I just, I just, I just want to go to take a nap, <laughs> right? They're just like energetic. They're bouncing around, right? If they're like excited. Um, and so, but, but the reason of the physical and the afflictions and of this body are to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory that I don't think we can quite comprehend. And so think on those things. And so for the majority of our time, let's go to 1 Samuel. Let's open her up. First Samuel eight. <clears throat> and so one thing I love about the um, Old Testament narrative is because usually there's like two or three chapters devoted to like one main idea or one main like to get the point across right we see in is it first corinthians 10 that it talks about um those things that happened in bringing them god bringing the israelites out of egypt and those things that happened in in egypt and in the wilderness for were for our example right so that we might not learn to be idolaters and and whatever else it says um and so that whole long narrative uh, Paul summarizes in like a couple sentences, right? Um, you know, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10 that, you know, that not to be uh, sexually immoral and idolaters like some that were, 
you know, swallowed up and, and died. There's so many th tens of thousands in one day. And so this huge long narrative is God's way of helping us to like get the point across. And um, one of those examples is like the book of Judges. Uh, and, and because this is God's way of helping us. God condescends even enough um, in his humility to give us the scriptures, not because he needs to, but because we need it, Amen. right? And so um, anybody, I'm the only person here who has kids um, of my own, and, uh, but everyone in here has worked with kids or knows kids and, and whatever. And um, sometimes when you're like working with kids and you want to get a point across, you go through like, uh, what's the one about the little red, the little red hen, right? Yes. I love that story. You know why? Because you need to help. Yes. You're not getting no bread if you don't do nothing. Amen. That's right. <laughs> and so I love it because I'm not just gonna, I'm not just gonna wash the dishes and cook the food, and you get to lay there as a kid and play video games or do whatever. Uh, whoever doesn't work doesn't eat. It's one of the first Bible verses I had Lily memorize. Uh, maybe there are better ones to start out with. But, and so uh, everybody participates in making the meal uh, to get to the dinner table at our house in one form or another, um, in the front end or the back end. And normally Lily's job is setting the table if we're going to actually sit down and eat or something, um, or at least getting plates out or, or doing something. Um, and so uh, the whole story of like the little red hen is like this huge long story that gets to the end where the little red hen's not going to share her bread because nobody helped her and so that's a kid's story right that we use to get this whole long story to make a point that uh, whoever doesn't work doesn't eat and so um, like the book of Judges is a great example because you go through what was that, like 26 chapters? Something like that. Of 21 chapters. Of all these stories about people disobeying and wickedness, and they already had the law and all these things. And the very last uh, verse, the very last line in Judges is, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Oh, I get it. It says that, a couple other times, I think two other times in Judges, but that's the whole point of the book of Judges. And uh, we should understand that. And so when we get to Samuel, um, we understand uh, chronologically how this is going, that uh, they need a king of someone to rule over them. And, uh, and because they had the law, they had the priest, but they weren't doing it, right? So somebody needs to rule over them. Uh, and uh, they already had an opportunity to be obedient, to follow the law and whatnot. And so when we get to Samuel, in the eighth chapter, the elders are coming to Samuel and Samuel's a prophet over Israel. And uh, he's old and they tell him, uh, that's usually not the most respectful way to come to an elder or somebody saying, hey, you're old. <laughs> And your children are losers, so uh, we've got a proposition for you, right? 
And so they were looking for an opportunity um, to set up a king. They know that through Samuel, through the prophet, uh, they wouldn't just mm, <coughs> excuse me. They wouldn't just get a king um, any old way. Samuel would have to institute the king, and if Samuel instituted the king and anointed him, uh, that would be the king. And so they're going to Samuel to position that, like, hey, your sons aren't following your ways, which was mostly true. And um, they can't continue. We can't just have them follow in your footsteps because it'll get even worse is what I think they're petitioning. And so Samuel is disgruntled, not because they called him old, not because they pointed it in his face that his children have left his ways, but Samuel was disgruntled that and displeased because they asked for a king, um, which would have been a good disgruntled uh, because God tells him, God tells Samuel to go back uh, and, and give him an answer and he's going to give him a king. But it's not going to be a king that they, the king that they need, it's going to be the king that they want. Right? Um, oftentimes, I, I always use the examples of like children just because uh, children are young, naive, not they're not naturally full of wisdom. Wisdom is something that you learn and are disciplined in. And so oftentimes children are a great example of, of um, immaturities, uh, foolishness, and not being wise in little things that we do as adults in bigger things. Right? Uh, and so... Um, uh, I'm using Lily as an example a lot because she's here and she says funny things and it's cute sometimes. But, uh, and so oftentimes uh, she'll be like, you know, I'll ask her, what do you want for dinner? And she'll be like, candy. <laughs> okay, well, that's not an option. Uh, <laughs> you know, that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be prudent to eat candy for dinner or chocolate or something like that or cereal. Um, that wouldn't be wise. Uh, maybe in uh, a particular person's household, I'm thinking of, they might have candy for dinner, but not, not us. Uh, and so um, children often, you know, exemplify that. And um, the Israelites here are exemplifying uh, just a, a way of, of idolatry. And, and so the Israelites wanted a king and it, uh, it was a wrong desire, as the text says, to want a king. Because uh, even though you look in Judges, like what we just read, is they were, they were doing whatever they want because they didn't have a king. And that's not juxtaposed to, to them. You know, it says, it seemingly says in Judges that God needs to institute a king so that they'll uh, become obedient in, in some form. And then you know, a few chapters later, chronologically in Samuel, it says that wanting a king was wicked, right? And so those two aren't juxtaposed. They aren't antithetical and they're not opposite of each other. Um, knowing, uh, uh, has anybody ever, uh, well, maybe as a kid, have you ever wanted a different parent? <laughs> I have. Uh, or... Um, you know, some kids will be like, uh, you know, I've heard other kids, 
you know, say, say things like to other people like, I wish you were my dad or I wish you were my mom. Usually it's because like they did something fun uh, or they're doing something that's not like normal in that household and it's, and it's fun and this is what they want all the time, like having candy for dinner or playing or something. Um, and so uh, wanting a parent is different from wanting a different parent, right? One of those would be a, uh, a just thing and one would be unjust. And so um, to kind of understand God's ways a little bit, he does this uh, multiple times in scripture. Uh, Yahweh actually acquiesces to their um, request for a king to show them their idolatry, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, same thing happens, um, you know, in Egypt with their, their idolatry and they, um, and, you know, man is coming from heaven and after they're in the wilderness and like, let's just go back to Egypt. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, God kind of, uh, allows them in a sense to get their request because they, uh, didn't, they wanted leeks and onions and all these things. So he, uh, rains down uh, more quail and enough that they can't handle it, and so, um, and so the Lord is allowing them their request. And so, if you go to let's turn to Romans one and read twenty four to twenty five. Uh, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so it's a normal pattern for God to give up people to the lust of their hearts and of their minds in rebellion against him. And one reason is... Uh, especially in the narrative here in, in Samuel, is to show us how wicked we are. Well, you want this? I'll give it to you and see how you like it. Right? Um, anybody hear, hear stories of like, uh, you know, this would be like a dad thing, like the dad catches their son smoking and is like, okay, you want to smoke? You can smoke. You're going to smoke this whole pack of cigarettes and see how you like it. Right? In hopes that you get sick, vomit, and you don't feel like smoking anymore. Right, we've heard of things like that. And so the Lord actually gives them what they want. He lets them uh, get a king. Their clear desires is to be like the other nations. Right? If you go through um, the list of the, of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, starting with, uh, I shall have no other gods before me. Second one's idolatry. And then you jump to the tenth one, which is? Not coveting, right? And so we see uh, from the first commandment to the last commandment, they're, they're kind of encompassing that, right? Their idolatry is causing them to want to be like the other nations. And so uh, you become like what you worship, right? Psalm 115, 4 through 8 uh, talks about that, that you worship mute idols and, and, and you're pretty much becoming like them. And so that's a a law of nature that God instilled that whatever we worship, we become like. 
And so when you keep your eyes on the other nations, as the Israelites did, they, you start becoming like them. They, they didn't say that, like, let's institute these idols and let's start worshiping foreign gods and all these things. They said, let's just try to not get the idols, but let's get the king part, right? But that's not how it works. You can't, like, pick and choose of, like, in your idolatry, like, I can take tenets of Buddhism and because that's good, uh, I like those things and then not have the idolatry part, right? You can't pick and choose in that. Uh, you're going to eventually get all or nothing. And we see that in the Israelites. This is where it started. Actually, it started back in Egypt. But we see here, the Lord's bringing it out again of you're trying to be like the other nations and the idols slowly started creeping in after that. Um, to where they had physical idols and ashtras and they were worshiping their children in the high places. And so you can't just like pick and choose. Um, it's all of God's law or it's going to slowly dwindle. It's either going uh, full speed towards the Lord and his lordship or it's going to, it's going to dwindle away, right? And so... Um, they get what they wanted, and they don't get it. And so the Lord decides to give them a king um, to exemplify who is... Remember how we uh, often talk about like headships and, and rulers? Are, what is, basically, what is a king? Not just besides a ruler of a nation. It would be the one person, like if you were to say, uh, um, what's the one person that represents the United States of America? The president, the president right? Obviously, we're leading into that. Uh, it's a ruler. It's, um, you might think of some, if you're weird, you might think of like some movie star or something. I don't know. But right, you usually think of like, who's the ruler? Who's this person embodies and represents the nation? And so God gives them a king who is like them. Right? They wanted a king, and God tells them through Samuel that I'll give you a king, but he's going to take and take and take, and he's going to essentially, all of those attributes that are listed are, is a king who is serving himself. If I'm going to be your ruler, right, if, if he institutes Saul as your ruler, he's going to take your children, he's going to take your money, he's going to take your servants, and he's going to serve himself. And that would perfectly represent Israel in this narrative because that's what they wanted, Right? They were serving themselves. Uh, and so God appoints them exactly like that. God appoints a, a, a king exactly like that. And so in God's sovereignty and providence, he knew that they were going to do that. Um, just like in, in the garden, God knew Adam was going to fall and prepared a way of redemption. You notice that after the narrative of Saul, the Lord doesn't say, okay, and let's, let's, just, just, let's cut this king bullcrap out because you don't need a king, right? He doesn't go back to a theocracy of just God's going to be the ruler and we're going to do that organically. Um, that last verse in Judges is still true. They still needed a ruler. But what kind of ruler they needed was one that was self-sacrificial, who loved the law, who understood it rightly, could deal with justice, right? all pointing forward to uh, the Christ. They all would think, all the Israelites would have thought that the Christ would have been the one who's going to be the anointed one, the king of Israel, 
who's coming, right? Which is why we'll see in the coming weeks um, David foreshadowing and, and partially embodying that. And so God in his providence knew that, and he does this oftentimes. He'll let us go so far in, in our sin and the lust of our passions to show us how deep it goes, right? And when we're looking at the, the age of the prophets and the kings, it goes really far. Uh, I couldn't imagine just before the days of, of Josiah uh, what that was like and what they were doing. Um, and I don't know if they ever have any Jesus movies like that, but it'd probably be at least R-rated, uh, if not X-rated, or if there's whatever the next step is after that. Uh, and so um, that's something to just under, not just understand the narrative, but understand like that the Lord does that with us today. He'll allow us to go farther into our sin and the lust of our passions in hopes of showing us how bad it gets, right? Because it doesn't get any better until we see sin for what it truly is, Amen. right? And so God isn't just doing this as a disgruntled father or, uh, or king that says, well, you want that? Well, I quit your gripe and I'll give it to you, but you're not going to like it, right? He's doing it as a loving father who's preparing a way uh, for the Christ, uh, for a righteous king um, to rule over them, right? But the people uh, have to see how bad it is first. And uh, that's something we ought to be praying for is, you know, uh, no one actually comes to Christ except for at a rock bottom experience, right? And that might look different for someone who grew up in church and is self-righteous uh, or someone uh, who, who was an atheist, you know, rebelling against God in, in every way and form. But either way, the Lord is trying to open up our eyes to see how deep sin goes. Uh, and it would be good for us to, to pay attention to that, to see how the Lord works, um, first for ourselves, second for our brothers, and then, you know, as we minister and, and disciple others. And so with that, let's pray and worship. Uh, Father, we glorify you through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that you would uh, turn our eyes towards you, turn our eyes, Lord, to see, uh, to see rightly, to see how deep sin goes, uh, to see how bad it is and what is the effect, Lord. Uh, don't let us stay in the uh, lust of our, of our hearts and in our minds. Lord, redeem us. Lord, we are here to worship you that we may become like you that you'd pour out your spirit on us, that we would uh, have power through the Holy Spirit to imitate you and be children of God. Amen.